the future of healthcare is all about place. You know, it's not necessarily, it's like, I can look at a map of Charlotte, or I can look at a map of New York City or any metropolitan country, metropolitan area in, in the United States, right. and I can just look at that map and I could tell you, I could tell your listeners right now, based solely on where a child was born and lives, I can tell you the likelihood of how long they're going to live to be. Right. I, and it, if you had little Susie and little Timmy were born on the same day in the same hospital, but then mom took Timmy and Susie to two different places to live their lives, right. I could tell you right now one's going to live to be 65 most likely and another's going to live to be 80. And so we, we can make these predictions solely based on place, which tells us the answers to the, to the challenges of healthcare are place-based. Mm-hmm. They're like figuring out how do you build networks of support around people in poverty or people at, at any economic level so that they not only have access to affordable, excellent care, but they all have, also have access to housing and to transportation and to educational equity and to social equity, all these other things that we know create a healthy individual or healthy community. That was Donald Jonas, and you're listening to USA TVD, a podcast exploring critical issues facing America today, of which there are many. Social justice causes, systemic racial oppression chief among them, an outdated, visionless, and unsustainable foreign policy, a broken food system in which we are literally eating ourselves to death, and a political system so dysfunctional it feels almost beyond reform. All of this unfolding within a world of accelerating exponential technological change and in a country that doesn't really know itself, where myths and half-truths still define the narratives we believe in and live by. So who are we really, deep down? And how do we get here? What's actually happening today, right now? And where do we go from here, together, as a nation and a people, in a future that is very much to be determined? I'm your host, Dave Bernath. My guest today is Donald Jonas, Executive Director of Care Ring, one of the oldest and largest privately funded health and wellness agencies serving individuals with limited resources in North Carolina. Donald also serves as an adjunct professor at UNC Charlotte and Queens University of Charlotte. He's super passionate about improving the health and life outcomes of those less fortunate. And he and I went to college together back at Chapel Hill in the day, and he joins me from his office in Charlotte, North Carolina. Okay, Don, welcome. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Dave. Um, so I've been using the word diagnosis with other guests to talk about issues that we've been discussing uh, on the show so far. And uh, in this case, it's particularly apt. So, you know, I would love to sort of start very, very big picture, both to whatever extent you want to toggle between the now and the how we got here. But, but you know, so between the sort of historical point of view around healthcare in this country and then the state of things, It'd be great to just have you talk a little bit about where we are um, in your view and also how we got here. Sure thing. So uh, thanks so much for having me on. It's um, always fun to chat with you. Um, so, uh, you know, right now we we have a non-system of healthcare in the United States. We right. have sort of multiple 
multiple semi-functioning systems uh, that are in various uh, states of disrepair. I mean, we have a, a veterans assistance, veterans program for veterans. We have a Medicare system for older folks. We have a Medicaid system for very poor and elderly individuals. We have an employer-based insurance program. We have a non-system for people without public or private insurance. We have by far the most complicated, complex, and difficult to understand healthcare system of any advanced Western democracy. Right. And the there's a reason for it. I mean, we we have as a country we have chosen to create a system like this. So to your question, we kind of either go back in history and think back really about a hundred years ago. And so in 1920 or so, uh, there were very few people that had, uh, health insurance of any kind. Right. Uh, there, there was no, um, infrastructure. There were very few hospitals. The medical professions were just getting certified and up and going. This again, just about a hundred years ago. And we had our first real big breakthrough with disease treatment, uh, with, um, syphilis in 1910, where we figured out a way to, to uh, relieve the symptoms of syphilis without impacting the person. So we, we started to have these breakthroughs about 100 years ago, and we started to see more hospital systems come in place. Mm-hmm. But again, very few people had health insurance. Most people, they, they had what they call sickness insurance, which was really if, because people, they couldn't go to work because they were sick. They wanted to still get paid. Right. And so you could buy the sickness insurance. And that was that was a way to continue to have income coming into your family, but it wasn't a way to cover the cost of whatever health insurance you had. You right. were, you, you you did as best you could to find whoever you could uh to try to alleviate your problems. So we we did see this spiking of the the, the sort of current infrastructure for American healthcare system if we go back to World War Two. So if mm-hmm. we start like in nineteen forty in America, you had a, about 15 or 20 million people that had sort of a, a rudimentary form of health insurance. But by the 1950, 10 years later, we had 145 million people wow. with health insurance, most of it through their employers. So you, you think, what, so what happened in that little, that window of time from 1940 to 1950? And I'd done some research in a previous career as a think tank, and we were looking at the future of America's healthcare, and we kind of dug into this, and a, a key driver for this was uh, a result of World War II. So mm-hmm. there was the the War Labor Board came out and said, uh, you know, employers are not allowed to increase what they pay their employees. You know, we're, we wanted to make sure that we were able to um, push all of our resources towards, you know, fighting the war. So you could not raise wages for employees, but they said, adding health insurance at your place of employment would not be considered an additional wage increase. Wow. And so almost overnight, we saw companies across the United States in their battle for labor labor to try to attract talent, retain talent. We saw them start to add health insurance as an offering in order to attract people to come to work for them. And so almost overnight, within a less than 10-year span, our country, starting in the 1950s and then going forward, we got in this mindset that the way to receive health insurance, the way to be covered in America, is through your employer. 
Mm-hmm. And so we've kind of been we didn't we didn't make a conscious decision as a country in the late 30s or 1940 to say you know I think the best way right. for us to provide health insurance is going to be through your employer you know we didn't sit down and say maybe it's through your house of worship or through your your some state association or maybe there's it's better that we actually have a a, a single national health insurance system for all the reasons that we're learning now it can get better outcomes it can cost less we've never. We never really had that full-throated conversation in our country, and so now we're we're living with the with the remains of that. So we're again, as I started this with, we now have a whole bunch of people, about half the population, that's getting their insurance, their health insurance, through their employer. But we have all these other people that are in all these various schemes that have been created to try to provide care to different populations at different stages in their life, and it makes it extraordinarily difficult for us to come to any kind of consensus in this country about what kind of system we should have and and what is really the best system, best in terms of both what it costs for our people and both also accessibility for all of our people. What is that best system? It makes it really hard to have that conversation to move away from from where we are now. Yeah, I mean, uh, even just hearing you describe it, the mind spirals off into all the different layers of each of those subsets just from natural human, you know, inertia to all the vested interests in each particular silo from the VA to the, to the government uh, programs, to the private programs, this massive multi-billion dollar industry that's grown up around that foundation. And I would just add, that's one of the things we, now when we start to look out, you know, beyond here, this was really the, the, the fulcrum of this book that I worked on a few years ago called Healthcare 2020, which was, Let's look at the if we're if we're in an employer-based system for the majority of people that are receiving health care in our country, what happens when we start to see uh, a decline in the number of working age people and an increase in the baby boomers that are starting to retire? Right. And so we just looked at some basic demographics. I mean, if you go back to the year 2000, there were approximately four uh, working age people that could be paying into the system, people between 25 and 64, four of those folks to one retiree. And then we look a few years from now in 2020, it's going to get down to about three to one. There'll be about three people that are paying and working in the system to one retiree by 2040, which unfortunately is really not that far away. It's down to two to one. Mm. So we're seeing this collapse from four to one to three to one to two to one of the number of people that are working to make the system, the employment-based system work, to the number of people that need to receive care if they're beyond their working age years. And it has huge implications for how we fund Medicare, for how you sustain an employer-based model when you don't have as much, you have many more um, retirees than you had in the past. It just has tremendous implications if we step back for a moment and just as a demographer look at what's getting, what's already happening and is going to be like a, a tidal wave of people that are that are retiring in the coming 10, you know, 15 years. Right. So then just kind of looking at then the, the moderate near term uh, in terms of the Obamacare period and, you know, the states that did and didn't opt in and how, what the plan, you know, uh, framed up and, and made real and what it didn't and, you know, how far it went, how far it didn't go for all the various reasons of, of compromise in politics. W- what do you think has been the no matter where we are in, in the in the sort of the pendulum of what that of what that moment what that program has been able to achieve or is being unwound or what have you, what do you think that that 
that period of time when when that Affordable Care Act was passed, and now we're dealing with the aftermath. What is it has what has it done to kind of change the the climate and change the conversation? I guess both for good and for bad. Yeah, that's a great question. You know, it was you know if you go back and you look at the the Affordable Care Act, the real you know the genesis of it was from a Republican administration in Massachusetts. You right. know, Jonathan Gruber was a MIT economist, and he and a number of other folks were helping Mitt Romney in Massachusetts with Romney Care, and they looked to um, uh, the Heritage Institute, uh, perhaps the premier conservative think tank in America, right. for advice on how do you set up a state level system to encourage people to participate in the program and also to extend coverage. And so it's the reason I start with that or I mentioned that is that healthcare has just become so politicized. Uh, It has always been an overly political conversation in our community, in our country. We haven't, we haven't looked at data. We haven't looked at evidence. We haven't looked at what actually works. So if you, if you do that and you look at how the affordable care act came through you know, for those states that elected to expand Medicaid, uh, their percentage of their uninsured within their population uh, is, is down to levels that we've never seen before. Right. And, and the outcomes for people that are very poor are better than we've ever seen before. And yet in other states, I live in North Carolina, and our General Assembly is one of 18 other states that elected not to expand Medicaid. Um, we've cut... Um, We've made some improvements, and clearly we've expanded health insurance to people with um, previous conditions and to other folks that were excluded from the from the uh, the private uh, insurance market. But we've we've left on the sidelines half a million people that, as of this day, still don't have access to care. Mm. So it's very it's we're at this kind of interesting moment right now where we went through this attempt by the uh, Obamacare administration to um, borrow many of the conservative themes that we saw were working in a state to implement it on a national level, and yet for political reasons, because it didn't serve immediate political purposes for the different parties, we're now at this point, we're about to, we're going we're gonna to pull out all the, the, the infrastructure to make this system work. So we're, and we're already starting to see data on this, where we're, for the first time in the last 10 or 15 years, we're starting to see a return back up of the number of uninsured. We're starting to see a, uh, some of the data that was coming out that we're seeing is that the more and more people are not having access to care. It could be because they're not expanding Medicaid, but it's also because they're not, there's fear of participating in the affordable care market because it's unsure what that's going to look like, you know, down the road. Right. Um, and then, you know, can you talk a little bit about, I mean, I guess it's, it's, I guess on one level, there's a common sense thought that we all have, which is, you know, if you're uninsured, you're vulnerable, um, you know, to, to variety of things. Obviously you go to the emergency room if you need immediate assistance and, but you're not getting preventative care. Can you talk a little bit about just, uh, from a sort of, you know, uh, life outcome, overall wellness point of view, you know, what would the impact and what it means to be an uninsured person? Um, yeah, we, you know, if, again, if we kind of look at data, you know, for example, and we've done this in our country from a public health perspective, when we recognize the dangers of smoking, um, you know, if you, if you choose to smoke in this country, we now know we've got firm data on it. There's a, a greater than one in three uh, likelihood that smoking is going to kill you. Yeah. And so we've put public health, you know, 
interventions in place all across this country, and we have in many ways kind of shifted the conversation about smoking and, and, and whether adults should make that choice or not. If you lose your health insurance, there's a, there's a one in about 2,000 chance that you're going to die from right. a lack of access. Right. And we know it. We know, we know people that don't have access to care, they, they delay getting treatment. Um, when they do show up, you know, clinics like the one that we operate, uh, they oftentimes have not received care in a, in a long time. They oftentimes have multiple barriers to care, whether it's transportation or finance or cultural right. barriers. Yep. And, and the outcomes become much worse. And that's where it, it's so much, you know, if we were in a vacuum and if we just design a system that would address those sorts of issues, we would all agree that it's much better to be in a system where everyone has access to reliable health insurance, affordable and reliable health insurance, because it will ultimately lower the cost for all of us. Because what we end up seeing and happening and something that I deal with on a day-to-day basis in, in our market are how, do, how can we get the people that are excluded from the market, they're not eligible for public or private insurance, how can we get them access to care early on? How can we prevent these sorts of things from happening? Because our hospital partners and our insurance payers and the broader community all agrees that it is much better to treat people long before an illness sets in. Right. Um, yeah, I, w- I want to dive into some of the some of the stuff specifics that that you're you've been involved in in the Charlotte, North Carolina area. But but before we do, because uh, that's going to be a great topic uh, with lots of fascinating angles and and some optimistic, you know, I think saplings that, that we've spoken about, but, but from a broader perspective as a policy, you know, person and a, and a, someone who's researched and lived in this space for a long time and now coming out of this Obamacare period, you know, broadly, how, how are you feeling about the state of the debate um, and, and what, you th- what you see in the near term in the healthcare space on a national level? Uh, you know, I wrestle with that, Dave, because... Um our society, our politics has gotten so rigidly partisan that I am, where I have a lot of optimism on a number of innovative disruptions in healthcare that are occurring that I hope we can spend some time on. I'm also, um, I'm saddened that, you know, we, we, we know we have tools. We know we have, we have, structures that we can put in place that can help people that are excluded from the system get access to care. And yet we knowingly and we willingly as a, as a people uh, choose not to put those structures in place. You know, right. we have, I, I, there's so many people that we literally, I mean, I live in a you know community of a million people in the Charlotte market and there are uh, estimates of around a hundred thousand people that don't have access to care. There's estimates of uh, closer to 200 to 250,000 people, you know, a quarter of the people living in my market who tell people on surveys that they didn't access care because they couldn't afford it because they were afraid it was going to be too expensive. Right. So while, while I'm optimistic that there are a number of innovative, awesome, unique interventions that are going on, from a bigger picture perspective, I'm really concerned that our country, our state, our community hasn't embraced what we know would work, what the interventions and, and ways to provide affordable access to all that could actually reduce the overall cost and get a better outcome for people. We're not embracing those things that we know work. Right. Well, let's talk about some of those things that you've been working on uh, at the local level uh, 
in terms of early access and, and interventions and uh, with the mothers and whatnot. So t- talk a little bit about what you've been doing in Charlotte lately. Yeah, I appreciate it, Dave. So I'm with an organization called Care Ring. Care Ring is um, a health and wellness agency that's been operating uh, in the Charlotte market since the 1950s. Uh, I've been told we're one of the oldest uh, health and wellness agencies in the Carolinas. You know, it's really just focused on people with limited resources. And if you go back, if you, you know, you think of the disparities in care that we have uh, today in our country. Uh, think about the 1950s in the South. I mean, there were uh, some of the hospitals here in town. African Americans, they weren't allowed to go there. They weren't even allowed to work there. Right. They were, you know, separate. Um, not as nearly as, as as efficient or good hospitals that were created to serve that population, but there were this very stark, dramatic disparities in care in our community. And there was a nurse in our um, town, Maribel Conrad. She was kind of a, a social justice warrior of her day that she just felt like it was wrong. She had a particular interest in women's heart health. And so she would go around to communities here, and you remember some of them, Greer Heights and others, and mm-hmm. would literally knock on doors and essentially do a health care screening and do the best she could to connect people to care because she knew the need was just so overwhelming. And then that her part to do this kind of work evolved into this agency that we have, uh, you know, where our mission is to help people with limited resources establish and maintain good health. And we've done it in lots of different ways over the last six decades. And we, we used to run the Reach Out and Read program, which was a way to get books into the hands of uh, new mothers in the hospital. And then that program got bigger and we spun it off and another group manages it. And the North Carolina Parkinson's Association and North Carolina Arthritis Association kind of started with us. We incubated it and it got bigger. So the the three core programs we work on now, which really informs in my perspective on, on health care and particularly health care for people that have been excluded from the system, um, is the work that we do every day. So we have a clinic that's in Uptown Charlotte. Um, we serve about 3,500 people a year. We do a lot of chronic disease management in that clinic. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we've got about 1,000 people that we're actively managing. It used to be that the clinic was kind of a, a humanitarian, uh, affordable, urgent care. You know, it was a place for right. someone that needed a physical to get to work or they needed a, 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 a shot or they needed a Band-Aid. But we really recognize that the people that we're serving need much more than that. Uh, so most of the people that come to see us are very poor. Uh, 90% of the people are below 100% of the federal poverty level. The majority of them have multiple chronic diseases. Uh, the majority of them speak English as a second language. I mean, these are people that are living in the shadows right. and they don't have access to care. And we, 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 we feel they deserve dignity and access to care. And so we provide it. Um, but then we, so that's a, a direct access to care that we provide, but we also, and this is a, an innovative model that actually started up in Asheville, North Carolina. And it's spread around the Carolinas, and we're increasingly seeing these sorts of networks around the country. Uh, it's a program called Physicians Reach Out, and it's a way for the medical community to volunteer to care for the indigent at no charge. So we work on behalf of uh, Atrium and Novant, two of the larger systems in our region, as well as Ortho Carolina, and lots of independent practices. So we have half of the physicians in town that agree to volunteer with us. So we've got about 16, 1,700 physicians. Wow. They don't come to our clinic, but they open up a slot at their practice or Got in it. their hospital. And they rely on us to screen folks. So if someone has public or private insurance, we want them to utilize that elsewhere. But mm-hmm. if they're very low income, they live in Mecklenburg County, and they don't have that insurance, we want them to come to us because the, the magic of this is not only the collaboration and the coordination across the hospital systems, 
is that we have primary care docs, but we also have the specialty care docs. So the, the primary care docs all said, you know, we'd love to do it. We'd happy to do it. We see the scale that you can do if we all agree to do it. But we want to make sure we can hand somebody off to a specialist if we identify a specialty need. And so we have been able to grow that, you know, in the last uh, year or so. We added the Levine Cancer Center for unlimited appointments for our people, which wow. was we struggled with this because of the you know, the, uh, the oncology practices were all there was like six or seven of them that were kind of divided, and we were trying to work with six or seven different people to tell them about the value of this program. They all got absorbed under the umbrella of the Levine Cancer Center over the last year, and they are payer agnostic at this point. They're, they're Physicians are paid at a base level, and so they they like it that we have screened people and we deal with transportation and and um, translation services and a lot of the other additional supports that people might need if they go to them. And we saw a huge spike in donated care just last year but because of the Levine Cancer Center, but also some new surgical practices and others. So we're up to just last year is over thirty three million dollars in donated care from the Charlotte medical community care for people. And we're over $150 million in donated care over the last 10 years. Wow. So, so it's, it's really, a, it's a, yeah, I'm sorry. I was going to say, you know, it's almost, it sounds almost like a, you know, a, you know, charitable, it's the wrong word, but essentially a donated, you know, pro bono HMO network on some level. Yes. Right. That's right. That's right. And that's when you mentioned earlier, you know, optimism. I do have some optimism, even though the Affordable Care Act at the federal level it is. We're not exactly sure what it's going to look like in a year, but it'll be very different, and it's likely that there will be a, a dissembling of much of the infrastructure for the Act. There is some incredible stuff that's happening at the local level. I mean, I, I have some optimism that building off what we've done with this Physicians Reach Out network, which, again, is happening all over the Carolinas and places across the country, you could really set up a universal kind of primary care system Right. Where you could knit together the healthcare social safety net, the hospital systems, the providers, the payers, uh, and the, the local government systems so that you could essentially, it's not, it's not, it's not going to be as robust as a, as a universal right. healthcare system, but it could be a way that you could virtually everybody in your community from the undocumented to the person with the best gold-plated insurance could all know that within a particular geography, in our case in a county, Every person could get access to care. You could create a navigation system and coordinate that so that you could see to it that everybody, and that would, not only is it morally, I think it's like totally where we ought to go so that people don't have to worry with health care, that they know they've got access, but financially, it could actually end up saving our community, our state, and ultimately our country money if we, if we really pushed on something like this. So I'm very, I'm optimistic that there are some ways that we can utilize that kind of a network to kind of not solve, but to address some of the mm-hmm. challenges that are coming with the Affordable Care Act going away. One other thing you'd asked, and I apologize, I got too excited about that piece, was on our home visiting program. That well, we actually, did. before before you, because I know that was that's the third program, right, that, with that I know, but that I, is. I just want to pause for a moment because I just, I'm curious, because, um, you know, one of the themes that's running through a lot of these podcasts is just the role of technology, the impact of technology. You talk about the employer-based model. What happens when, you know, AI and robotics and everything else starts to cause, you know, more job losses uh, and there's talk about retraining, what have you. So, you know, uh, universal basic income, all those concepts that are out there and the future is coming faster than we realize. But in terms of what you just described, 
um, I would imagine that the emerging role of technology is a real is a real catalyst and can be an enabler for creating the, the network you just described and trying to thread all these pieces together from even just from a logistics and information management standpoint. Is that is that part of no, what's that, helping you guys pull this off? Yeah, no doubt about it. I mean, we are we were in the stone age just until uh, three or three months ago. Uh, we were still a paper-based clinic. Wow. Um, folks would come in, and I, I could show you the the storage room of filing cabinets and files of people, and we were literally writing down orders and calling doctors' offices trying to track people. Uh, and we were getting extraordinary outcomes, and we, we we still are, just as an example, with our clinic. But we were really fortunate to work with Novant that helped to implement an electronic health record system for our clinic and also for that network care through physicians mm-hmm. reach out and it is extraordinary it's in, uh, amazing what we're able to utilize with this and I, I i know we're kind of behind the scene behind the times because much of the healthcare industry has already shifted to this over the last decade but for us it was just incredible i mean the predictive analytics we can do now when people have come to see us it used to be literally we'd have to make 10 different phone calls to figure right. out if the person went now we can like in like half a second we can pull up that file and we can see oh mr smith did come to see us and there was a cardiac issue and they did visit the cardiac surgeon and they are on these statin drugs they are we can we know so mm-hmm. much more and what's also exciting about it is that in at least in charlotte we're seeing coordination across two different hospital systems to share information and so uh while we're on the Novant Epic system that Cerner has a separate system that's on the Atrium network, but there is a, a collaborative nature within the cloud and behind the scenes so that you can see a single patient. And it's very true for us who may have gone to a primary care doc at Atrium, but went in for surgery at Novant right. and then went for uh, post-care assistance at Ortho Carolina. You can see all that in one place. And it truly, it wasn't, It you could not do that just, 10 years ago. Right. So there is, there's this, this extraordinary, if you harness this technology, there are some incredible things it can do. I should say, just because I always think about this with technology, is the, 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 the positive side and the, and the dark side. Mm-hmm. And because, you know, you look at one of the issues that we're addressing with others in this community from an advocacy basis is the childhood obesity epidemic. Right. And you start to look in and say, what is it? What's going on with childhood obesity? And, you know, we've got a third of American kids are overweight and up to 20% are now obese. And it's a, something that's kind of happened just in the last 20 or 30 years. And you start to wonder why and you think, Dave, we're about the same age. You remember when we were growing up, I assume you spent a huge chunk of your time outdoors and running around right. and, uh, in, in imaginative unstructured play. Mm-hmm. And, uh, today an average child spends about seven minutes, you know, less than 10 minutes a day, in unstructured outdoor play. Right. But they're spending upwards of eight hours a day in front of a screen, mm-hmm. in front of being you know, plugged in. And you know, we have these, like, my, my kids now, when they go to birthday parties, uh, a lot of times they have these game trucks that show up at parties, right? right? So they the whole, the, the whole purpose of the party is to sit down for two and a half to three hours and look at a screen. So technology is awesome for helping us do all these. But technology, if it's not used in the right way, can have all of these very negative consequences for public health and for how we address, uh, you know, the, the needs that are coming in our society. Yeah, it's true. The, uh, the 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 what's happened to childhood is probably a 
that's a whole series of of podcast yeah. episodes one could dive into because I think it's technology. It's also a sort of helicopter parenting, you know, that's uh, that, that I've seen is when my kids have come up and and a fear based way of thinking about it. I mean, you know, I see kids, you know, coming down the sidewalk on some little, you know, Fisher Price scooter and they've got a helmet on. I'm thinking, you know, this is not helmet worthy. And you're creating this sense of fear and having to manage for fear uh, when a kid's just going, you know, 50 feet on a scooter that's, you know, just like a tricycle. Right. If you saw a kid on a tricycle yeah. with a helmet, you'd think it was ridiculous. But that's yeah. a whole other topic uh, and uh, <laughs> but and a, and a deep, deep one. Um, so, yeah, you're reminding me. Now. I got to I got to book somebody on that topic. <laughs> but but um, but yeah, so let's get back to that third that third area of activity that I know we've spoken about before in terms of what you guys are doing with mothers and uh, in early uh, care uh, with, with children. Yeah, thanks, Dave. Yeah, so this is a, a program that we've uh, run here in the Charlotte market for almost 10 years now called Nurse Family Partnership. Uh, it's a program that started over 40 years ago. With a, a guy was writing his, his graduate thesis on how do you um, – how do you? How can you better make interventions early on in a in the life of someone in poverty to improve both the life of the mom and uh, and the baby? Right. And so over these forty years, we now there are nurse family partnership sites that are um, all over the country in every state. It's even gone uh, in other places around the world. It's really based upon this a lot of the science that's coming out. You know, we know the brain is one of the only organs that is not fully developed at birth. And 90% of the critical brain development happens within those first five years of life. Mm. And the language development and sensory pathways and a lot of the higher cognitive functions, you know, there, a lot of that development is happening in the first really 12 to 16 months after birth. And some of it actually even before birth. And so the idea around nurse family partnership is if a, a mom who's pregnant for the first time, uh, can, if we can, one of our nurses on our team can identify that mom before she's at 28 weeks gestation, mm-hmm. then we go, we go into the home. So the nurse establishes a personal relationship with that mom. And then she stays with the mom through the birth of the child and until the little one is two years old. Wow. So over the course of that two, almost two and a half year relationship that will be built with that mom, she'll make over 60 visits to the home. And so there's a certain dosage of an intervention that needs to occur at each visit along the way. And as long time, as long as we maintain fidelity to the model and we do the interventions as we're supposed to go, the the, extra, the outcomes are extraordinary. The right. the little one who gets that intervention early before it's born is much more likely to be born full term mm-hmm. than to need to go into an ICU at birth. Right. The the mom. Because it's a it's a nurse family partnership. It's not just the baby, but the mom is more likely to finish her GED or to go back to high school or to get into the workforce than a mom that doesn't get that program. And then we know the little ones because we've been doing it so long and it's been studied in so many different environments. The little one who gets that really intensive intervention again. These are uh, very low income families in very fragile situations. Right. You know, there's, there's, there's not often a dad as involved as you'd want to have. These are, it's a very challenging situation to a lot of homeless families, but that little one, 15 years later, is much more likely, uh, you know, to finish high school and to not get incarcerated and to get into the workforce. And so it's sort of a, it's a, it's a poverty fighting program. It's a poverty alleviation program that shows up in the guise of this, uh, registered nurse. 
that builds this long-term relationship with his family. And so we know this program works. It, and it, it, to, uh, to its credit, the state of North Carolina is investing in nurse-family partnership. Uh, there are the federal government has these programs that are allowing the program to expand through Medicaid reimbursement. Private philanthropy is helping us to grow this program. Right. You know, we've gone from about 100 moms we were serving a year to close to 350 moms now that we're wow. serving. That I what what makes me feel good about it is that. We know how to run this program. I know the results we can get with even the most challenging situations. Um, and this, I, I think there's lessons from this program that are transferable to lots of different ways that we can make healthcare better in this country. We know prevention is the way to go. Right. We know particularly for people that are in poverty, they need that additional intervention and they need those positive relationships. Again, for us, it's a nurse and some other similar programs to us it's a social worker, but in other cases, it's someone that's affiliated with a house of worship. What we're learning, though, is that all people, particularly people that are in stressful situations, they need that sort of loving relationship that doesn't occur just by a single intervention or a single dosage or certainly not just a pill, but through walking in those people's shoes, being with those people before birth and then after birth and then on into as the child gets older. Wow. We're excited because we're, we know this program works. There's no doubt about it, it works. It's got a huge return on investment in terms of reduced costs for public services down the road. We're part of a pilot program that we're expanding it. So it, it, for most NFP programs, that mom has got to be at 28 weeks gestation. Mm-hmm. 28 weeks in a day, or they've had a previous live birth, they can't come into our program or traditionally. But we're part of a pilot site with about 10 or 15 sites around the country where those are waived. So a mom right. that have already had a couple babies, she could be at 40 weeks gestation because we, because we know all these things work. We think, well, let's test this. If that model is the same, let's see if we can get similar results with, with low income moms that are in a slightly different life situation. Right. So I guess the, the, the phrase really should be all healthcare is local, not all politics is local. Um, yeah, on good. some level. Yeah. Um, and, uh, well, those are all, those are all are very, very encouraging signs. Um, you know, having been, you know, in this space, cause there's obviously other aspects to healthcare from, you know, uh, pharmaceutical, you know, the farm, ph- big pharma business and, you know, and the doctors and their relationship to that industry and, uh, the healthcare for profit giant companies and mergers and Walmarts get into the, you know, drug business and just yep. all the headlines, Anything else you know that that you think is worth discussing uh, today that kind of relates to some of those broader themes as you observe them from your position? Yeah, there's a real movement in this space around um, understanding and appreciating the broader social determinants of health. Mm-hmm. So when we think about what what makes a person healthy, increasingly the literature is telling us that really only about twenty percent of why you're healthy is because of your clinical care. Right, because you know the access to care, the quality of the care, which is something that you know, I spend every waking moment thinking about that kind of stuff with our clinic and our hospital partners do the same. But it's if you step back for a moment, there are so many other factors that influence the health of a person or of a community or of a state or of a country. It goes mm-hmm. far beyond just that clinical care. So, you know, health behaviors, whether it's diet and exercise or 
sexual activity or tobacco use. That you know, that's a twenty-five to thirty percent of what uh, provides someone a, a positive health outcome. There right. are physical environment issues, the air and water quality, and mm-hmm. housing, transit, and other issues. Then there's these, you know, the social and economic factors, which depending on which lens you look at, could be forty or fifty percent right. of what causes someone to be healthy. You know, what their, their education and their mm-hmm. employment, their income, their family and social support. You know, there, I, the um, Nicholas Kristof has written some great stuff on this. Uh, the um, opinion guy with the New York oh, yeah. Times. Mm-hmm. He, you know, he's talking about the the future of healthcare is all about place. You know, it's not necess- It's like I can look at a map of Charlotte, or I can look at a map of New York City, or any metropolitan country, metropolitan area in the United States. Right. And I can just look at that map and I could tell you, I could tell your listeners right now, based solely on where a child was born and lives, I can tell you the likelihood of how long they're going to live to be. Right. I, and it, if you had little Susie and little Timmy were born on the same day in the same hospital, but then mom took Timmy and Susie to two different places to live their lives, right. I could tell you right now one's going to live to be 65 most likely and another's going to live to be 80. And so we, we can make these predictions solely based on place, which tells us the answers to the, to the challenges of healthcare are place-based. Mm-hmm. They're like figuring out how do you build networks of support around people in poverty or people at, at any economic level so that they not only have access to affordable, excellent care, but they all have, also have access to housing and to transportation and to educational equity and to social equity, all these other things that we know create a healthy individual or healthy community. So I just think that that whole lens on thinking much further upstream to understand why someone is sick when they show up at a clinic that it's it's all these larger life factors that are impacting people's lives. There's a lot of really interesting and innovative and impactful stuff that's happening in that space right now in this country. Right. Yeah. Then then the challenge becomes how does a country that you know is is uh, as polarized and and seemingly from a legislative standpoint so dysfunctional, how does it act on on that kind of information, those kind of insights and. Uh, and then you layer on top of that, not to put us into the to the scary space as we head toward the close of our discussion. But you know, yeah. when, when the world is changing so fast, um, and technology is advancing at an ever increasing rate, and the impacts of it on uh, jobs, and uh, you know, whether we're Tesla-ing out truck drivers in ten years, or you know, just pick your topic, uh, yeah, that that creates an incredible level of insecurity and disorientation among a population that's also you know, becoming less homogeneous and then layer on top of that, the scale. I remember I had a teacher in college who said, well, one of the first problems is it's a really big country <laughs> just right yeah. there. It's hard to manage. It's not like yeah. Holland. So, you right. know, the, 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 uh, the sort of matrix of forces at play, even as uh, positive innovations and examples emerge, it feels like it's a little bit of a, I mean, a race against time, you know, with uh forces for good and innovations in technology and learnings and coalitions building while other things around it are either crumbling or transforming into ways that are very unclear uh, going forward. I hear you totally. I mean, I think about that a lot because there, there are these extraordinary innovations that are happening through technology. You know, my mom is a Parkinson's patient. There's these incredible apps that are now available and working through Alexa to have a, virtual assistant to help her do 
countless things. Mm-hmm. It's wonderful. And, yeah. it's just, and that's just one little tiny little wedge of the amazing possibilities of technology and how it can improve lives. And yet, as you said, I mean, there, we've talked about this before. There, there are these extraordinary um, dichotomies and, and differences in our life today. The community where I live now, it's the hardest community in America to, to climb out of poverty. Right. It's one of the one of the most difficult out of 99th out of 100 counties in the, in the United States. It's the hardest place to climb up out of poverty. So as technology comes and all these funky, gee whiz, awesome things are occurring, we're kind of blind to the fact that there's a whole uh, subset of our fellow humans of our of our citizens right. that are not participating in this in this revolution in technology. That, mm-hmm. I mean, people come people come to our clinic they they take a bus and they walk to us and they finally figure out a way to get to us and we ask them you know what's your greatest need they say food they right. say if we don't have access to food and it's like there's far too many people in our country today that are just not aware of what it's really like for a huge portion of our of our country of our society of our people to live in in, in poverty and so while these technology solutions are like there's a there's a new amazing app and intervention that occurs every minute. It seems like there's still this. We haven't embraced the fact that there are a, a whole lot of our fellow citizens that are not accessing this. That this is so far beyond sort of the very basic needs of what they need to be thriving in our in our country. Right. Well, you know, I'm I'm uh, I'm proud of all the work you guys are doing, and uh, I'm I'm glad that you're seeing uh, some some successes, and, uh, and that you feel there's a growing, uh, you know sense of, of cooperation uh, across the space uh, there and, and in other parts of the country. So fingers crossed that, uh, that all that continues to, to, uh, to be cultivated and to, and to flourish under, under you and all your other compatriots. Uh, uh, you're very kind. Leadership. I appreciate it, Dave. <laughs> Thanks, Thank Don, you. for being on the show today. Anytime. Thanks, Dave. Thanks for all you're doing. Thanks again to my guest, Donald Jonas. Thanks for listening to USA TBD. Please rate, review, and subscribe to the show and help us spread the word to family, friends, and the multitudes on social media. Also, be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at USATBD. Thanks to my editor and engineer, Alex Brazell. We'll see you next time.